for me, like finding a path to hopefulness is not like a intellectual exercise. It's like a necessity for survival. Mm. And so I get there by fighting my way back there each time and by believing, you know, I mean, it's, it's easy to forget this, but like humans are amazing. Think of the music that we've made. Think of the ways that we've protected each other. Think of think of the kindness that we, we we're able to show those we love. The ways we we sacrifice for each other. The ways that we uh, collaborate across time and space. There's so much about us that's so beautiful. And so I do. I try to go back to that. I try to go back and remind myself that, like, even when my brain tells me that there is no hope, that nobody cares about me, that there is no uh, love in my life, that I'm merely a burden on those who, who I care about, etc. All the, all the dirty lies that the, that the brain will tell you. I try to remind myself, like, that's not the whole story, because a simple story is never the whole story. I'm John Favreau. Welcome to Offline. Hey, everyone. My guest this week is author and YouTuber John Green. John Green is a lot of things. He's a New York Times bestselling author, including the 2014 sensation The Fault in Our Stars. He's the host of Crash Course, a YouTube series ubiquitous in high school classrooms across the country. And he's the brother of previous offline guest Hank Green, who John started his first YouTube series Vlog Brothers with nearly 16 years ago. To me, John is a kindred spirit. Someone who's also become worried about our intensely online existence, which we've both done our best to make sense of. Me with this podcast, and John in The Anthropocene Reviewed, an essay collection from 2021 that represents his first foray into nonfiction. The Anthropocene Reviewed is one of the most creative, insightful books I've ever read. It's a series of essays where John reviews everyday aspects of human life on a five-star scale. Everything from Diet Dr. Pepper to CNN to the human capacity for wonder. He even rates the internet itself. Three stars, which I thought was a little generous. But each review illuminates a larger insight about humanity to which John brings his earnest, empathetic perspective. Fifteen pages in, I knew I had to invite John on the show. We ended up having a fascinating conversation about the book, being a public figure online, and about all the things that make John anxious in this moment. Definitely one of my favorite offline interviews. Of course, there's so much in the book that we couldn't touch on in just 45 minutes, so I highly recommend reading it. As always, if you have any comments, questions, or guest ideas, please email us at offlineatcricket.com. And please stick around after my interview with John Green. I had a quick conversation with Max Fisher where we try to answer the age-old question, is Twitter finally in a death spiral? All right, here's John Green. John Green, welcome to Offline. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. I had a wonderful conversation with your brother, Hank, about a year ago now. Um, so I'm excited to complete the uh, Green Brothers circuit here on Offline. <laughs> yeah, no, the only reason I'm doing this is because he said it was a good time. Okay, good, good, good. Well, that's good to know. I've been especially looking forward to this conversation because um, as someone who's always struggled with anxiety and has been recently consumed with existential angst, um, I sensed a, a kindred spirit in you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I have a lot of anxiety. And I, ha- I have recently also been consumed by existential angst. I'm not exactly sure what's causing yours. But then again, I'm also not exactly sure what's causing mine. I kind of feel like it's going around these days. Um, it does feel that way. <laughs> well, one of the reasons I started this show is the same reason you wrote your last book, 
the Anthropocene reviewed, which is that my attention had become fractured. What was that realization like for you? Well, I, I had just begun to feel that the way that I was consuming the social internet had very little to do with choice and very little to do with what I wanted. I'd benefited so long from the internet that I was, I think, a little reluctant to acknowledge that I was no longer really benefiting from it. And so I wanted to take some time to try to think deeply, not just about the world around me, but also about thought itself and what I was thinking about. And this old question of, of free will that's been at the center of a lot of my work was coming back up as well, because am I really a product of my own thoughts or, or am I a product of this information environment that I've kind of allowed myself to live in, even though I recognize that there's some big problems with it? You have this great piece of advice from a, a friend and mentor of yours who passed away. Pay attention to what you pay attention to. Yeah. What were you paying attention to when you first started taking that advice? Well, uh, when I when I first started doing this this work with the Anthropocene Reviewed, the first the first idea, and this really did come from Amy Krauss Rosenthal, that writer who told me to pay attention to what I pay attention to. My first idea was like. Well, there's two things that I think about almost every day that I've never seen anybody write about in depth, which are Diet Dr. Pepper and Canada geese. <laughs> I have a lot of Canada geese that live right outside my house year round. They're not they're, they're not migrators. And we have, a, I think it's safe to say, like not the best relationship. So I started writing about Diet Dr. Pepper and Canada geese, both of which turn out to have a much more fascinating history than I ever could have imagined. <laughs> The book's conceit is uh, is so smart and creative. Um, and for those who don't know, it's a, it's a series of short essays where you review different aspects of human life, like Canada geese or Diet Dr. Pepper, and you do it on a five-star scale. Uh, I know it started as a podcast, too. How did structuring the book as a series of uh, five-star reviews help you communicate what you wanted to about humanity? Well, I also wanted to make fun of the five-star scale, and I wanted to acknowledge all these places where there are little things that have very, very recently begun to occupy big parts of our shared consciousness that haven't really been examined that much from you know, the rise of smartphones to the rise of the five-star scale. And there is something a little ludicrous about trying to uh, you know, assign a data point, a single data point to something as complex as Diet Dr. Pepper or a podcast or a book or humanity's capacity for wonder, which is another one of the chapters in the book. But I liked that, that approach too, because it sort of acknowledges the ridiculousness of, of contemporary experience. While also, I did really want to understand what do I love and not love about being here? How can I fall in love with the world without... Uh, denying or minimizing the reality of, of suffering and the extent to which that suffering is unjustly distributed because of human-built systems? How can I reckon with that reality and and emerge from the reckoning hopeful? Uh, unsurprisingly, your uh, review of the internet um, caught my eye. Uh, you gave it three stars. Um, I'm currently hovering around like two, two and a half. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
though I do share the same uh, 90s era nostalgia uh, yeah. as you. Yeah. So I, I, that was nice to read that because I have some good memories of the internet from way back. But, you know, you were just talking about what it's done to your attention. You also said that, you know, after after 30 years or so of being on the internet, it's had a lot of, you've been noticing the negative effects. What have some of those negative effects been um, in addition to sort of the fractured attention? I don't think we understand many-to-many communication very well yet. I don't think it's existed for very long. I see these conversations on Twitter, I see, not just about politics and the big things, but about little things like the fourth-tier English soccer team I'm a fan of. And I see them just devolve into toxicity so fast. And I don't think it's because the people who are having those conversations are evil. I think it's because of the structures and the architecture of of the system itself and the the ways those architectures are 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 changing. And so I think these problems probably always existed to to an extent. They probably always existed on Twitter and Facebook and and Reddit and the other places where I feel them most intensely. But I I I think that recognizing the power of these systems has also brought in a lot of bad actors. And I don't just mean in terms of like the user base, I also mean in terms of the people who are shaping the architecture of the systems themselves, that they've that they've sensed that this is a path to to power. And so I think that's part of why we're in this mess. But yeah, I mean, I feel it intensely every day because every day I let algorithms decide how I'm feeling about the world that day, which is yeah troubling. <laughs> I mean- for me, I think the internet is largely, if not chiefly, to blame for the fact that like I can I can barely read anymore, forget about writing, used to do that in another life, don't do that anymore. How do you find time to write and think when your job also requires you to be on the internet so much? Well, I do think I struggle with it as well. You know, before I started making YouTube videos, I wrote like three novels in three years. And since then, I've written like three novels in 16 years. So I, I don't I don't know that it's been great for my writing. But what I love about writing is very different from what I love about the Internet. The Internet is everything. It's it's uh, it's a fire hose. It's intense. Uh, the, the responses can come within seconds or they can come years later and you never know who's going to respond or when. And, and that's part of the thrill of it. It's like being at a, uh, you know, a slot machine where, where you can't win money, but you can win thrilling Internet points and writing. And reading, for me, are the opposite of that. They're quiet, they're contemplative, they require sustained attention. And if I don't have that in my life, I get really sad and and anxious. For me, writing is almost like a long walk in the woods or something. I have to do it to feel fully alive. Like I have to do it. And then I have to, I also have to do it to like kind of reintegrate myself into myself, if that makes sense. Like on some level, I don't yeah. think I know what I'm thinking until I write about it. I, I mean, therapists give this advice a lot, which is that like you should wake up and write or spend some time writing yeah. because that's the one way to sort of integrate the both sides of your brain. And and I, like I've heard this advice and I still get up at five in the morning and go downstairs and sit in my office. And I'm like, all right, should I write for five minutes or should I just check the news? And then I check the yeah. news and I'm like, fuck. It's <laughs> so it hard. 
It's so hard because I agree, you know, like I know the last date I didn't check the news first thing in the morning because it was September 11th, 2001. And every day since then, uh, when I wake up, the first thing I do is check the news. And like, I'm not going to make that mistake again. <laughs> yeah. And, and also just there's a sense of like, well, what happened overnight that might shape my experience today? And I really want to know that now. And I can know that now. And I struggle with it, too. Like, I, I'm not trying to sound all high and mighty or anything. It's just that, uh, yeah, I mean, I struggle with it so much that, like, right before this conversation, I was on the uh, I was on the Internet, like, trying to figure out who's winning a war, uh, which the Internet is not going to be able to tell me today. It's just so compelling. It's so good at doing what it was designed to do, which was to grab and hold our attention. Uh, that's what the Internet is optimized for. In, in 2023, the internet is optimized for holding your attention at all costs because your attention is valuable. It's the product that they're selling. And ultimately, like I think the a lot of the individuals who work in these companies, they want to do good. But like ultimately, you've got to maximize the amount of attention you capture. And the way that that happens is by making people scared, making them feel really intensely, making them angry, making them outraged, and making them believe that the people who disagree with them are not just idiots, but dangerous idiots. Do you feel that our extremely online existence has changed at all the way you write or think or converse even? like the, I, I can't like... I'm not sure about this yet, but I feel like I've noticed in the last several years that even like thought patterns become like quicker yeah, and, and more like in line with how you read the news on Twitter and how the information comes at you out of your phone. And I'm just wondering that even, even sometimes when I like put the phone down and go take a walk, it's like, it's hard to get into deeper thinking. Yeah. I mean, let me give you a non-internet answer to that question. For the first like six years after I graduated from college, like I br briefly worked as a hospital chaplain, and then I went to work for this magazine called Booklist. And at Booklist, the reviews have to be 175 words long, and I wrote many hundreds of reviews in the six years that I, I worked there. And even to this day, I'll look at one of my novels and I'll highlight a paragraph and it will often be 175 words. And that's not because I did that on purpose. It's just because like that's how long I think paragraphs are because that's how I was trained as a writer. And I think it would be very bold of us to assume that our both our individual consciousnesses and then our like shared experience of the world is not being shaped by this thing that we do all the time. Yeah. You get at a, a larger problem with the way we consume information um, in your excellent review of CNN. Uh, two oh, stars, maybe, yeah. a, maybe a touch generous, but uh, that's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got actually, uh, I actually interviewed, I had an interview on CNN where somebody was like, it's not very nice, you know? And I was like, well, I mean, I think that there's other news channels that are one star. <laughs> if that makes you feel any better. It's yeah, it's like all the <laughs> the cable channels are none, none of them are uh, yeah too good. Um, you point out what's considered news isn't primarily what's noteworthy or important, but what's new. So we get a lot of garbage, we lose a lot of context, we end up misinformed about the world. I think obviously with the internet and social media, this dynamic seems to be getting worse, not better. Obviously, yeah. How central of a problem do you think this is 
for humanity. Like, I think it's pretty big, but I'm also biased as a media and political person. So maybe I'm in a bubble. Yeah, I mean, I'm also in a bubble, just a slightly different bubble. But I think most of us know that the deadliest infectious disease in 2021 and 2022 was COVID. And I think almost none of us in the rich world know that the second deadliest infectious disease in 2021 and 2022 was tuberculosis, which has been the deadliest infectious disease every year until 2020 since 1970. And uh, then before the antibiotic era for like probably 50,000 consecutive years. And so when I think about the way that we're distributing information, gosh, we can talk a lot about the issues that are super polarizing and that mostly affect people in the rich world. And some of that makes sense, right? Like you and I both live in the United States. The politics and policy of the United States has has big influence on us and on our communities and indeed on the world. But to only focus on that sort of basket of issues and to completely lose the historical context or the larger global context that for most, you know, most people in the world over the last two decades, the biggest infectious disease threat has been tuberculosis. That is a problem, I think. I worry that it ends up lifting up the kinds of voices that can easily access Twitter, Reddit, Facebook, YouTube in English, mostly. And it ends up further oppressing, further pushing out, further pushing away most voices in the world. And so I worry about it a lot, but not just because it uh, leads to misinformation about the core issues. Like, of course, it also led to misinformation about COVID. We all we all know that. But the fact that we don't, you know, most of us don't even know. I didn't know five years ago. I mean, I kind of thought tuberculosis was sort of like a 19th century disease of British poets. I did. I had no idea that this year a million and a half people are going to die of it. I struggle a lot about whether this has something to do with the algorithms and the internet, uh, which it definitely does, but how much of it is sort of like human nature, right? Because we know in our minds that context would be better to have and that we should care about all these problems. We should hear about them. But then you look at ratings and audience data and all this kind of stuff and people- People don't want to hear it. People, People don't want the vegetables. They don't want the homework. They just want the good stuff. And like- I also think the fractured media environment makes it difficult, too, because I think we try to offer people context here. Crooked Media, I know you guys do that all the time on YouTube and TikTok. But it's like, I don't know how we get out of this because part of the problem seems to be us and not just the algorithms. Totally. And by the way, I don't just mean like you, you say like, oh, like this is what people like, but it's also what I like, you know, like I also, yeah, no, I'm I, I also like the, the clickbaitiest clickbait, you know, like I also want to know uh, what happened with Trump's indictment this week way more than I want to know what happened in tuberculosis research this week, even though uh, one is, is arguably more important than the other. And, and, and I, I really, I don't know a way around, an easy way around that, except to not optimize for attention, like which yeah. is which is the economically irrational thing to do the way that our systems are set up now. But I also think it's really important to remember that from a historical standpoint, it's not like the way things 
are is the way they have to be. And it's not because we know this because we can look in the past and we can see the way that, you know, these highly, uh, you know, the newspapers of the early 19th century were basically large, many of them were sort of in the misinformation business, in the business of not only selling misinformation through advertisements of uh, medicines that, that didn't work and, uh, and, and, and miracle cures that, that didn't work, but also in the business of misinformation to their, to their readers through, um, through the way they t- told news. And over time, I think we actually—I mean, people are very hard on journalism, and I, I, I know there's, you know, some some reasons for that. But over time, I actually think that we built pretty strong systems to to say, like, well, no, that's not that's not good journalism, and like, we don't approve. And so I, I, I think we can reform our systems to be better because I've seen examples of us doing it. I've seen examples of us building systems that are more inclusive that better meet the needs of people who aren't centered by the social order or by existing power structures. And so I know it's possible. So that's why I, I kind of can't respond to it just with despair. Mm. But boy, I'm, I, I, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't like close to despair some days. I think my biggest worry about sort of the internet, social media, and the way we get our information and news from our phones is that it's it is contributing, I think, to a sense of doomerism, especially yeah, among yeah. young people. Yeah. Um, and obviously, as you as you said, there's plenty of reasons to worry about the future. But in your review of uh, humanity's temporal range, which I also loved, um, you wrote, for most of my life, I've believed we're in the fourth quarter of human history and perhaps the last days of it. But lately, I've come to believe that such despair only worsens our already slim chance of long-term survival. What's your argument against doomerism? Well, I guess my argument against doomerism would be that I, I really believe that hope is the correct response to consciousness. And that if you look at 250,000 years of human history, you see a lot of examples where hope led us forward and despair didn't. Where hope helped us get to a better shared world and despair didn't. But also, like I I think the, the arc of human history does bend toward justice. Um, I, I really believe that, as Martin Luther King famously said. And more importantly, I believe it can bend toward justice. Mm-hmm. And so I do think, I, I, I was with my son. My son yesterday said to me, he's 13. He said, the difference between my generation and your generation is that um, we know that we're all doomed because of climate change and you didn't. And I, at first, I was like, well, first off, Henry, growing up in my household in the 1990s, I heard that we were doomed about climate change every day because my dad worked for the Nature Conservancy. <laughs> so like, maybe, that's, <laughs> maybe that's why I'm a little prone to doomerism myself. But then I was like, but, you know, it's a really good point, Henry, because you are exposed to these like constant existential threats and not just existential threats, but like existential threats that were caused by human choice, by human neglect, by human systems of oppression. And that must be really, really difficult when you're 13. You know, like I, it must be really difficult to like think about that stuff all the time and worry about it and, and feel like, um, you know, we're sort of monsters to each other. And it's hard to argue against, right? Because we are monsters to each other. And you never want to talk about hope in a way that minimizes the reality of injustice and the reality of pain. 
you know, so many of us are in are in so much pain. And the last thing that people need to hear when they're in pain is actually you should feel good because that's just not true. Yeah. And so how do you balance that with a need to also say, but I think there's a reason to go on. I think there's a reason to work toward a, a better shared future for us. I don't think we're in the fourth quarter of human history, and I don't think we should act like it. I don't think that we should assume that we are the last people who will ever live, because at least from my reading of history, people who do assume that tend to like head us in the wrong direction. How did you get to that more hopeful place, or have you always sort of been there? To be honest, man, it's a fight. It's a fight every day. I'm not always in that place. You know, I've lived with depression and OCD for most of my life and um, and I still do. And so, you know, I have, for me, I, I think this is true for a lot of people, but for me, like finding a path to hopefulness is not like a intellectual exercise. It's like a, it's like a necessity for survival. Hmm. And so I get there by fighting my way back there each time and by believing, you know, I mean, it's, it's easy to forget this, but like, humans are amazing you know i mean amazing we think of think of the music that we've made think of the ways that we've protected each other think of think of the kindness that we, we were able to show uh those those we love the ways we we sacrifice for each other the ways that we uh collaborate across time and space how i can learn how to write from shakespeare because he left me uh some signposts how we know what's keeping the stars apart for God's sakes. Like it's, it, it's really remarkable and, and lovely. There's so much about us that's so beautiful. And so I do, I try to go back to that. I try to go back and remind myself that like, even when my brain tells me that there is no hope, that nobody cares about me, that there is no uh, love in my life, that I'm merely a burden on those who, who I care about, etc. All the all the dirty lies that the that the brain will tell you. I try to remind myself, like, that's not the whole story, because a simple story is never the whole story. Mm. I always try to think that there's a choice, right, at, at the end of the day. And it's, do we try and we try to move forward? And do we try to lift each other up and improve other people's lives and be kind and generous or do we just give up right if because we think that we can't change and if we give up like that's fine we can do that but it's to me a little selfish (laughs) a little uh, you know and like it's also a guarantee that things aren't going to get better or at least it's a guarantee that we're not going to be participants because then we're like hoping someone else will take care of it yeah and we're only here because things got better we're only here because people tried you know, I often think about the fact that I'm only here because of antibiotics that uh, were first synthesized in 1944. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, we, we are a direct product of the 198 billion people or so who, who came before us. And, and we hold in us their hopes, their dreams, their ambitions and those who come after us will hold ours. You talked about a lot of this a few months ago during a lecture titled How the World Ends that you gave uh, at a church at Harvard. I absolutely loved it. Oh, thank um, you. It was just a wonderful, wonderful speech. And because, you know, I've, I've been struggling with sort of the 
existential dread that comes, I think, with aging mm, <laughs> and yeah. also and also with like everything that we're involved in right now yeah, it <laughs> is very weird it's very weird that we're gonna die and it's very weird that we're inside of bodies it's, like yeah and that's always been weird and it's yeah. a, and it's additionally weird now that we're living in a time where like every morning we wake up to news about like like you said climate change yeah fascism it, whatever mass murder <laughs> whatever. Yeah. mass murder right like you pick it it's it's there but it was interesting to me because it was i thought it was a profoundly theological speech. I'm a product of a, a Holy Cross Jesuit education, so I've thought about this a lot. What role has your faith played in sustaining your optimism? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Um, I think that, you know, my relationship with my faith is is pretty complicated, so complicated that I don't know that I really do have a coherent theology. And, you know, I was talking to my wife about this a couple of days ago on a walk. And it's like, you know, one thing about you that I've always admired is that like, even when we were like 23 and just starting to date, like you had a very coherent, like consistent theology that made sense, that answered the big questions around like, why, why does evil happen? Why is there so much injustice in a way that wasn't at all, um, you know, didn't blame uh, people who are suffering. I've always admired that about you. And I just like don't have a coherent theology at all. And so I guess my answer to that question would be that um, some days it helps different different ways than others. But I th the underlying concept for me is that, you know, I, I believe that, you know, I'm I'm called by my faith to act in this world. I don't know much else about what I'm called to do through the Gospels, but it does seem to me pretty clear that I'm called to act in this world. And there doesn't seem a lot of ambiguity about what I'm called to do, because the businesses that uh, the central figure in my religious tradition were up to were, were pretty straightforward, and they were feeding the poor and um, healing the sick and um, telling the marginalized and the saying that the last shall, shall be first and the first shall be last. Yeah. No, I mean, I've, I've struggled with doubts that have probably only grown as the years have gone by uh, with faith. But then I think, you know, like every religion, just about every religion has at its core the golden rule, right? That like yeah. you should treat others. And I'm like, that that can't be a coincidence that yeah. over thousands and thousands of years, different people, different cultures, different parts of the world have all came to this understanding. And I don't know that that can be explained through mere evolutionary <laughs> or maybe it can what, maybe like, it I, can <laughs> I, yeah i don't need um like to me one of the least interesting theological questions is whether god exists like i'm just not i'm, I'm not really interested in that question oh, but not uh, gonna solve it <laughs> yeah exactly like I, I i know lots of people are interested in it and it sounds interesting when they talk to me about it i just can't get that hyped up about it myself but yeah it's funny you should mention that my my mentor eileen cooper wrote this beautiful children's book called the golden rule that looks at the way the golden rule is presented in many different uh, cultures and contexts and historical periods. And, and you're right, like it, it's, a, it's a reminder to us of our ultimate responsibility, which is to treat each other well. I think that, you know, in the end, I think the meaning of life is probably other people. I think it's, you know, being, being part of this great, sprawling, terrible, lovely human story. You spent so much of your career writing and talking about the the joys and mysteries and and meaning of life to younger audiences. Um, why? 
Why younger audiences? Well, I, I mean, a few reasons. I guess the biggest reason is that when I was a teenager, the books that I read that meant a lot to me meant a lot to me and still mean a lot to me and still shape the way I understand the world and lit me up and changed my life. And, and the thought of being able to have a seat at the table in young people's lives when they're forming their values, when they're going through those big, hard firsts, first love, first grief, first questioning of, of one's moral compass and responsibilities to self and others, all that stuff. Like that was really exciting to me. It remains a great honor and privilege. And then the other thing is that I just like, I liked, well, I'm going back and forth between past and present tense, which is something to note. Um, but I, <laughs> I like slash liked the, the time of life for writing about. It's just, it's a really, it's a really good time of life as an American to write about, right? Like think about all the great writers who've written about coming of age from Mark Twain to, you know, Toni Morrison in a, in a book like Sula. Obviously, I'm not going to be Mark Twain or Toni Morrison, but I love the I love the connections between adolescence and America. Like we are kind of an adolescent nation in some ways, and so that's probably part of it too. And also, they're just great characters, you know, because like when you're 16, you're engaging with the world intellectually with quite a lot of sophistication. I think well, more sophistication than than adults tend to acknowledge. But at the same time, you are you're so new to it that you're asking the questions, the big questions about the meaning of life with this sort of like lovely, if like slightly cringy, absolute earnestness. I, I've been thinking about this a lot because um, I I have a two year old now. It's my first child. And one thing that I've realized is I sort of forget a lot about my own childhood that I yeah. now started remembering. Totally. Now that he, now that he's you know starting to talk and ask questions and just the the questions that he asks and and seeing everything start from scratch again. It's just it's a really it's a sort of a wonderful and uh, sort of eye opening experience every day. Yeah, it's so exhausting, uh, especially being the parent of a really young child. I mean, I don't know. It doesn't get, it doesn't get easier, really. It just gets different. But, I hear that. Um, but it's also so encouraging. I don't know. There's something so encouraging to me mm -hmm. about it to see the way that kids interact with the world around them. Yeah, it helps, it helps me feel hopeful. I'm going to ask you, how do you feel about the uh, wave of book banning across the country that has included removals of the fault in our stars and, and looking for Alaska. Well, this is going to surprise you. It's a bold take, but I'm opposed to it, actually. <laughs> no, you're not on the fence on that one. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I usually I usually uh, I, I usually try to set a thoughtful line, but I actually I, I think fascism is bad. Hard stop. <laughs> um, yeah, it's super frustrating. I mean, I, in a lot of ways, I've I've been going through this and, you know, American Writers have been going through this for centuries, you know, certainly for over 100 years. And the argument is always the same, which is that uh, somehow our, our children are, are going to be massively, uh, massively corrupted by encountering the reality of, of experience in, in a novel and encountering the reality of, of feeling. Um, but of course, like 
if anything is offensive in a novel and and it's true, what's offensive is the world, not the novel. And mm. I don't particularly think that uh, uh, using the word fuck is obscene. And I don't particularly think that, uh, you know, personally, I don't think that, uh, you know, acknowledging the existence of human sexuality is obscene. Uh, I do think it's I do think it's quite obscene that um, you know we're we're going to lose so many people to gun violence this year uh, when we know how to uh, reduce the number of people we lose to gun violence because everywhere else in the world has done it. I think that's obscene. And so, if we're going to have these different definitions of obscenity, I think that we have to make room for each other, and that's what librarians and teachers do. Librarians and teachers are the professionals that we have trained to make these decisions, to make decisions about how to educate our kids, to make decisions about what uh, the the books in our our libraries should be. And I I think we should trust them. (laughs) That's what I I think. You know, like uh, that's basically, but also on a deeper level, you can't tell other people's kids what to read and then call yourself in favor of liberty. Uh, You can maybe tell your kids what to read, although they will reach an age where they decide for themselves. But you you cannot order other people's kids to read this or that in school and not read that or this and call yourself uh, a libertarian. Yeah. And also, like, look, I, I as a parent, I understand the impulse to want to protect your child from absolutely the realities of the world. Yeah. But, like you said, you might want to start with um, uh, something you can do about gun violence, perhaps. That's that's one way to protect them yeah. <laughs> in a real way and not protect them from something they're going to find out anyway on their own or as they get older. Yeah. And ultimately, like, look, I think that there are things that shouldn't be in school libraries, right? Like, I think there is explicit material that shouldn't, you know, shouldn't be in school libraries, of course. But like, my novels are not pornographic. They're just not. And if you find them pornographic, like, that's super weird. I don't, I, and I don't, I don't like to judge. But it's just really weird to be like, oh, yeah, no, like, I'm really into this um, work of pornography that's like a quiet novel about loss and guilt set at a boarding school in Alabama. Like, no, I don't believe yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I'm not going to accommodate that view. Um, so la- last question. Um, now that you've written a beautiful book about humanity's contradictions using a five-star rating system, how would you rate the five-star rating system? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, if I'm in New York City and I need to find a public restroom, I will absolutely go to the public restroom that's 4.2 over the one that's 3.6 every time, right? Like I trust (laughs) the people to tell me which restroom to use. And so on that level, like it's very useful and I use it all the time, right? Like we all do, but also it's ludicrous. It's absurd. Hamlet, Hamlet has a lower average Goodreads rating than the Anthropocene reviewed. You, I love my work. (laughs) But you cannot tell me that anyone would ever say, oh, yeah, no, like Hamlet kind of sucks. But the Anthropocene Reviewed, that's that's the shit right there, man. No, <laughs> it's a ludicrous, right? Because, we're, because you cannot use a single data point to express the complexity of encountering a work of art 
And also because your experience of that work of art will always be unique to you. I, I always think about this when I, I, I had this brutal, brutal breakup uh, when I was in college, a lovely person, not, not their fault at all, but just like, it was just devastating, heartbreaking. Everybody was heartbroken. And um, after we broke up, I was in Baltimore. I went to the Baltimore Museum of Art and I stood in front of the, the very impressive uh, collection of impressionist paintings at the Baltimore Museum of Art. And I was just crying. Those paintings mean something to me that they don't mean to anyone else in the world. They mm. were life-saving to me in a, and life-giving to me in a way that uh, they aren't to anyone else. They may be, and they are life-giving to other people in other ways. Trying to distill those kinds of experiences to like 3.2 is ludicrous. And we're obviously doing that for the benefit of recommendation algorithms, not for the benefit of each other as a species, right? Like if you, you take the internet out of it, nobody ever is like, hey, how was the, um, how was your dinner? It's like a 3.2. I grew up in the 90s. Like we never said that. No. Never. No. The idea didn't exist. And so I, I that I'm concerned about. I'm concerned about the, the, the speed with which we will change our way of thinking about critical analysis to meet the needs of algorithms or of, uh, of machines. That worries me a little bit. But on the other hand, like what would I do without that app that tells me how good a bathroom is? So- Two and a half stars. Okay, I thought I, I figured you were getting to two and a half. That's good. I was, I was like, we're landing somewhere between two and three. <laughs> <laughs> John Green, thank you so much. This is a wonderful conversation. Appreciate you uh, coming on offline. What a joy! It's great to uh, great to be here. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with John as much as I did. After a short break, we'll be back for a quick conversation with Max Fisher about Elon Musk's latest efforts to drive people away from the platform he overpaid for. All right, we're back, and I have Max Fisher with me. Hey, Max. Hey there. Um, I know we talk about Twitter way too much on this podcast. True addicts. Uh, but there have been quite a few developments over the last few weeks that have once again raised the question people have been asking ever since the platform was purchased by the world's second richest man, a.k.a. Elon Musk, a.k.a. Harry Balls, <laughs> uh, which is what he changed his name to. Uh, as cool. some kind of a post-April Fool's joke that was just missing the humor. He's so funny. He's so funny. He's so funny. I love his political commentary, too. <laughs> and he his said, humor. You know what he said? Do you know what he said? He said, his dog is the CEO of Twitter. You can't. You can't. That's just. Yeah, that's great that's stuff. super funny. <laughs> so, so anyway, here are the developments that have happened at Twitter. Twitter briefly blocked or restricted or shadow banned links to Substack, which mm -hmm. is a subscription newsletter platform, because they came out with Substack Notes, which Elon views as a competitor to Twitter. Mm -hmm. This drove some Substack writers off Twitter, most notably one-time Elon fanboy Matt Taibbi, uh, author of The Twitter Files. Yeah, he's now on Truth Social. So there you go. <laughs> what an arc that guy is. That's had. a real arc. Yeah. Talk about the horseshoe. He's all the way around. <laughs> Uh, Twitter briefly labeled NPR and BBC state-affiliated media outlets, which is what the platform has traditionally used for propaganda outlets and authoritarian regimes like Russia and China. After NPR reminded Twitter that they only receive a tiny bit of government funding and have complete editorial independence, they changed the label to government-funded. Uh, but NPR said, fuck you, and announced they'd stop using Twitter because it doesn't really drive traffic and also can't be trusted anymore. Elon also removed the New York Times verification badge for no apparent reason and has said that all other legacy verification badges will disappear 
at the end of the week on 420 again because he has the sense of humor so of an eighth funny. grader from the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we're working with here. And um, finally, he just gave an interview to the BBC. Uh, state-affiliated BBC, where he confirmed that he's laid off more than 5,000 employees, claimed that Twitter is roughly breaking even, said he only bought it because a judge was about to make him, announced that his dog is CEO, like you mentioned, and floated that he might sell the platform if the right buyer comes along. Boy, I bet he would. Yeah, no kidding. All right, so how big of a deal do you think each of those developments are? So I kind of rank them in my head as like small deal, medium deal, really, really big deal. Mm -hmm. And I think the small deal, like Substack Notes thing, I think looks very shocking because we're not used to Twitter outright censoring its rivals. This is something that a lot of social platforms do though, or they won't like block all links, but like YouTube links on Facebook have always been really ugly and Mm -hmm. that's deliberate and it's designed to like block competitors. And then like Substack is just not, I think, really a viable competitor to Twitter anyway. And they removed the block. I think it was only up for six days. So I, there was a little bit of a freak out over that, but I think that's actually like yeah. not so unusual. I think if they had kept it, it would have been a bigger deal. Mm. Partly because I think Twitter thrives on like a small subset of people who are like big tweeters. And I think that a lot of the Substack writers are big Twitter people. Yeah. And so if you had lost a lot of them, I think that could have been a bit of a problem for them. I also think it's just, you know, fucking free speech platform, Twitter, right? Waving the free speech banner. Yeah, and now yeah. he's like censoring, uh, com- you know, potential competitors. Right, right. Which, I mean, it, there's always been an irony to the like ultra free speech flag, which for no apparent reason, Substack has decided to like tie itself to in the worst, most self-defeating possible way at a time when they're also losing a ton of money. Yeah, so that's... <laughs> All right, so that's a small one. That's a small deal. Yeah, yeah. In your, your uh, view, so the I think the like deliberately antagonizing New York Times, NPR, BBC, also PBS, which has also said they're not going to use the platform anymore, right. is I think that's a little bit of a bigger deal because first of all, he's doing it for no apparent reason except the like delight of his fans, and he says that he derives personal enjoyment from it, which <laughs> I honestly believe that as oh, the explanation. It's one of the only true things he said recently. Yeah. <laughs> And I think it's like, it is important to remember that Twitter on its own as a platform has no content and therefore no monetary value. All of the value comes from people posting on the platform. So if you go after media agencies, which have traditionally been the big primary drivers of content on the platform, and is why people go to it, because it's a like clearinghouse for links and a clearinghouse for news. Not a clearinghouse for links or news anymore, it becomes less worthwhile. Now, I don't think that's going to lead to a bigger death spiral because I think because there is no viable alternative to Twitter, I think very few other news agencies are going to leave it. So I think I don't think this is going to be like everybody will flee Twitter and it will collapse. But I think that he is hurting pointlessly the financial viability of the platform at a time when he really, really cannot afford to do that. I think the financials are a thing that like don't get discussed as much as like the platform doesn't work and it's like blocking rivals and it's like antagonizing PBS. But like, I think those are actually really dire for Twitter. Well, let's talk about the financial stuff because I, I know you think that's a, a bigger deal. Yeah, yeah. So um, Twitter has never really made money. It's only been profitable two years in its entire existence, 2018, 2019. And Musk claims that it is roughly breaking even. I do not believe him. 
uh, because it was it was not going to. When break. you say roughly breaking <laughs> yeah, even, right, right, I know right, you right. can tell. Okay, how right. rough is that? Right, right. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a car- <laughs> it's a very notable choice of words. Uh, I mean, Twitter was probably not going to break even this year, even if he had not bought it. But he bought it. A ton of advertisers, which drive all of the like five billion dollar year in revenue of the company, fled because they don't like the way it's he running. He also said in that BBC interview, he's like, uh, just about all of them are back. It's like, that's not, yeah, you that's can, not right. You can use the platform <laughs> and you can tell that like the ads are like, they're garbage. It's, garbage. it's like not, you're not seeing like high quality ads. And his big plan to replace that has been Twitter Blue, the subscription service. So the idea that you will pay to you $8 a month to use it and basically nobody. Get your blue check. Yeah, get, yeah right. Get that, get that blue check to own the lib. <laughs> and it, like no one wants to pay the $8 on the lib fee. That's, no. I think they have, so they, they will not say, and they're not required to because they're privately owned, will not say how many paying subscribers they have. You can use, and there's some researchers who are like, go into the API to check how many people have Twitter blue. And it's just under 300,000, which translates to, uh, how much is that? $28 million a year, even if all those people were paying, and we know they're not, and $28 million a year if you're trying to replace a couple billion in advertising revenue. Like, I'm not a math expert. Well, I mean, just for context, the last quarterly earnings report they put out when they were a public company, this was Q2 of 2022, was $1.2 billion in revenue. So I think that... Uh, Twenty-eight million doesn't sound like right. It's not going to. That's it. less. Right, right, right. That's much less. And so they're, and the. I think this is a lot more dire than gets appreciated for two reasons. One is that even if he made money at Twitter, he's not going to make money because Twitter owes interest on the fourteen billion dollar loan that he took out to buy it, or he was forced by a judge basically to take out to buy it. One point two billion dollars a year in interest because he got this very high interest loan because he did not want the loan to be in his books. They're actually on Twitter's books. And that's that's a lot of money to cover <laughs> that's for a company that also loses money. Like, how is it going to pay that? And the other reason I think it's really dire is that Musk is not he's not super liquid right now. He's, yeah. he's I mean, he's worth, you know, almost 200 billion. But that's basically all tied up in Tesla stock. And Tesla stock is like not doing well. It's down. It's up a little bit from its low. It So it, it dropped to about a third of its value towards the end of last year. And it's now up to about half of its prior value, but it's like... So when does the shit hit the fan on the financial <laughs> stuff here? <laughs> I think... Like if he has to pay the interest on that loan. Right. So I think the really telling thing here is that like I, I have always believed that like you can tell that the health of a social media platform, you, the last place you want to talk to or go for, like figure that out is the users because users are always going to complain about being on social media just like right. what we do. Yeah. But if you go to like what does Wall Street think, I think is much more telling. And because Twitter is not public, we don't have a stock price we can look at. But that interest, that loan that he took out is something that Wall Street has been trying to sell. That's like the banks that loaned mm-hmm. out the money to him and trying to sell that off to investors is what they do. And they have said, the banks have come out and said, no one wants to buy this loan because they don't think it's worth anything because they don't think Elon Musk can pay it off. They were getting offers of 60 cents on the dollar. Wow. Which is catastrophic for a loan that they just made of $14 billion. And so they were in talks with Elon Musk of restructuring it so that it would be in Tesla stock as collateral. And I think that when the shit hits the fan is when it starts to really imperil Tesla's stock price, which we have already gotten 
really, really close to a couple of times. Musk sold off a bunch of his Tesla shares at the end yeah. of last year to buy Twitter. That was part of what, in addition to Tesla having a bad year, drove the stock price to just crater. Because if you're an investor in Tesla, you know what looks really bad? The head of Tesla sell selling off all of his shares in it. So he has pledged not to sell off shares in Tesla for the next two years, but he might have to. In order, otherwise, how's he going to pay that? Right. Otherwise, how's he going to pay the $1.2 billion? If he has to restructure this loan because Twitter can't pay it, he's going to need to put up a bunch of Tesla stock. And something he has always done is he has always financially entangled all of his companies. They all loan each other money. They own pieces of each other. They just got workers going across them. And that was always okay because Tesla was always going to the moon with its stock price. And now that that is not true, and the investors in Tesla are like looking for their money, and some of them are like threatening to sell off even more than they already have. I mean, I don't think the whole house of cards is like going to fall tomorrow, but I think as long as he's got all of this money tied up in Twitter and all of his attention tied up in Twitter, it's a real risk for him. So the question now is, is Twitter in a death spiral? Obviously when he first bought it in those early months, there was like, oh, this is the end. And everyone's like saying their goodbyes on Twitter. And, and that did not come to pass. You're, and, not, you're not on Mastodon I'm these not, days? I have not been tuning Oh, man, it recently. is, it is, popping, is off, it pop popping off on the Don. <laughs> follow, follow me on Mastodon for more, more commentary. I have not even, I will not even go to the site. I don't, I don't know what is it the a site, site is. Is I it an app? I, I, I don't even, I, I can't I even tell don't you. Know. Right. Okay, so... Um, that didn't happen. It didn't, and and Elon was celebrating this in the interview with the BBC. He's like, "Oh, the all the haters said that you know Twitter was going to die in its life." I will say though, I feel like in the last, and again, this is in the category you mentioned of users complaining, but like in the last couple months, it has seemed buggy. It has seemed a little dead. It's really janky. It it, it is also like what you were just saying about the NPR New York Times stuff. Like it's become. Fewer fewer people that I followed all the time who tweeted all the time are tweeting now. I'm one of them. I don't tweet as much anymore. Yeah, I tweet a lot. And too. so it is just like news links. Yeah. And I wonder if instead of it just like disappearing overnight, like everyone was afraid of, it's just going to be sort of a slow decline to. I I think that's right. I mean, I think the big question will be: Is there a place where users like you and I? by which I mean degenerate addicts yes, right. can go. Because I, I still check it. Like, me too. Oh, you me know, too. 300 times a day, just as my much as My tweeting I, is less. Yeah. yeah my yes. checking is has not really declined that much. Yeah, I think that's right. And I still like, you know, I was following some stuff that's like going on in China that I couldn't figure out. And I like wasn't quite satisfied with the news stories. And I like went to Twitter and there's like some great commentary there. So I still, I personally get value from it. I don't want it to collapse. Well, this brings us to the question of, potential alternatives because the last couple of months have made me think, okay, I've always complained about Twitter. I think it was bad for me. I think it's bad for the world. But there are certain aspects of what the platform has offered in the past that I do think are valuable. For sure. Basically what you do as a news aggregator, I need a news aggregator. Yeah. Like I do I I don't want to just go to the New York Times and the Washington Post and CNN and Politico and all these and just look for the news because I, I want a wider breadth of commentary of reporting yeah. so need a news aggregator i do like that it's a place where you can go and find smart people offering opinion. i know that's like hard to find those people but they're there they are. <laughs> offering interesting insight and commentary and then there's like a frivolous need which is like you know what when something big is going on in the world or the country it's like good to jump on somewhere and get it's instant. a little fun it's, right. it's a little fun yeah it's a little fun like trump's getting arraigned 
where do you want to go? You want to go on Twitter? Right, right. Although that that part of the platform, I feel, has been broken, like, almost to the point of beyond repair because yes, the feed yeah. is so algorithmic now that it's like, Trump is getting arraigned. And, like, here are some tweets from three days ago that were, like, a little funny. And it's <laughs> yeah. like, that's great. That's great. Thank you, Twitter. Yeah. And so if that doesn't come back, again, not the end of the world, whatever. We all had our we all had our Twitter era. Right. But I do think the other two are important. And I, I was wondering, when I saw that the that Substack had created notes before the the throttling that Elon uh, gave them. I sort of went over to check out the notes and it is like a, it's like a quieter place (laughs) because the notes are just like, it's like, it does look a lot like Twitter. You can understand why Elon thought it was a competitor. You can restack instead of retweet. But when you go on there, you only follow the people who you subscribe to their newsletters, yeah, which is, again, a very self-selecting group, which is fine because I only subscribe to newsletters for people that I give a shit about. Sure. So watching them all comment right. is like a not a bad alternative, uh, although I, they had some trouble. Um, Chris Best, who's the uh, one of the founders of Substack. Oh, my God. <laughs> conducted an interview with um, uh, Neelai Patel. And uh, Eli was like, hey, um, what about racism on your platform? Would you, do you not want that? Because he was, because Substack's whole thing is like free speech, free speech. They're all free what speech. A, what people. an easy question. And just he was say, like, just say, he's like, don't I don't like want, it. he goes, I don't want to get into content moderation questions about what I, what I will and won't allow on the platform. And he's like, yeah, but, but, but like, if it becomes overrun with racism and transphobia, like, you wouldn't like that. He's like, I'm not going to get into it. You're like, what? <laughs> what? Now, it's interesting because he did say at one point we have content moderation policies. They do have a content moderation policy. It's not much, but it basically the content guidelines are no hate speech against protected classes that incites violence, no doxing people. So like pretty basic shit. But I did I listened to another interview that they did, the the two founders did with Kara Swisher. Mm. And they basically said that even though they have a content moderation policy, the reason it's so bare bones is because they see their platform more like WordPress, which is software you use to create your own website. And basically, if you know a Nazi created a website on WordPress, you wouldn't blame WordPress, you'd blame the Nazi. Right. And they're basically saying that Substack, because there is no algorithm just showing you shit, but you're just subscribing and paying to writers that you like, then they're just sort of a platform and they're not like Twitter in that regard. It does feel like a meaningful distinction. It's not great for Substack that we're the ones having to explain that to people instead of like Substack. <laughs> yeah, like I, that could have been a, yeah, maybe could have thought about some uh, talking points before your interview, right. buddy. <laughs> it's too bad they have no money whatsoever to pay us for this free image consulting we're doing. I, I mean, I think what's really striking about Substack, like really stumbling into trying to do a Twitter competitor is no one else has tried to do it. Like you would think all of the big incumbents in Silicon Valley would look at Elon blowing up Twitter and look at like all of the Twitter users saying like, hey, I would love to go literally any place else and just like set up an alternative service, which would be extremely cheap for a Microsoft or a Google or a Facebook to do, but they're not doing it. I think because they just, they don't see it as a profitable business, which I think speaks to the like weird place that Twitter is in, Mm -hmm. which is that it is something like, essential or hard to, you know, hard to break away from for its user base, which is not growing, but is, you know, pretty large. But it's not, it's not a viable enough business for it to make money or for anyone to launch a competitor, which is why I think like, I think you're right that we're going to be stuck with some zombie version of Twitter for a really long time because people want that service, but there's no reason for someone else to set it up. I mean, it really is the one social platform I think that has the strongest case for like, should it be a public utility? Right. 
the Substack guys also said to Kara that they have that their view of like why Substack is is going to be a thing is that social media is moving in two directions and it's either going to be the TikTok direction where it's all algorithmic lizard brain just giving you what you want dopamine hit kind of stuff i love it yeah, yeah basically your whole book yeah. uh short form really short super short form stuff or it's going to be you pay for like relationships with writers thinkers whatever who you want to hear from you you're willing to read more long form stuff and it's more about like what you choose to read and stuff like that and so there's two different directions but that like anything in the middle is sort of going to get lost is this is this the place for us to plug the crooked media subscribers? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, come join our Discord, everyone. We have great content. Everyone's moderation very policies. Nice. Yeah. Well, it's funny though. She asked them about who they view as their competitors, and they mentioned Discord's doing some interesting stuff. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. With community yeah. on the community side, there is. I mean, it's something that you and I have talked about. Is that we have, and I think a lot of people like us have, in our own content like consumption habits shifted a lot to smaller kind of corralled services. Like I'm on a bunch of slacks and like I'm not on discords, but I'm on similar things. Yes. And like I would pay to be in those spaces because they do have a lot of value for me. Well, this is the last point I'll make on this and then we can end it is my theory of it's not like a very ingenious theory, but like if Elon wasn't such a dick, <laughs> I could have I could see a scenario where people would have paid to subscribe to Twitter. Yeah. Still not as not as many as I think they need, but like when all you he is now in the customer service business, right? And he he thinks he is a he's a troll who's also like the head of customer service at Twitter, and all he does is like he's attacking the New York Times, he's dunking on the libs, like who the fuck wants to pay for that? To just be like to have the guy who owns the platform just like making assholeish jokes and dunking on people all the time. I think that's and I think it shows how Twitter from Jack Dorsey or whoever I forget who took over after Jack Dorsey to Elon Musk has shifted its like core audience that they are trying to serve that it used to be. And the people who they would have gone after for a subscription product were people like you and me. Yes. Or like big media companies, which were always their like core of the business, the people where they were really trying to court. And I think you're right that they could have by saying like, we have these new bespoke services for you that are going to help you with spaces or broadcasts. I think they could have gotten a lot of money at it because those are people who would pay and have because their institutional would have paid. And now the people the customer base that the Elon era Twitter is trying to serve is like cat turd too. Is the like right wing trolley like culture war because that's his fan base. And I think that he cannot in his own mind separate out wanting to serve a customer base who will bring him like financial success for his company and like wanting a fan base for him personally because I think he can't in Twitter at least he can't differentiate between himself and the company and maybe doesn't want to. And if it were not for that loan I think he could afford to get away with it, but I don't know if he can when he has to pony up that $1.2 billion at a time when the Tesla stock price is low, at a time when he needs collateral. And so instead, we are all stuck in the Cat Turd 2 era <laughs> of zombie Twitter. That's where we are. I love it. Uh, Max Fisher, thanks for joining. Thank you. Offline is a Crooked Media production. It's written and hosted by me, John Favreau. It's produced by Austin Fisher. Emma Illick-Frank is our associate producer. Andrew Chadwick is our sound editor. 
Kyle Seglin, Charlotte Landis, and Vasilis Fotopoulos sound engineered the show. Jordan Katz and Kenny Siegel take care of our music. Thanks to Michael Martinez, Ari Schwartz, Amelia Montooth, and Sandy Gerard for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn and Narmel Konian, who film and share our episodes as videos every week. 